Hey, everybody. I'm John Small. And I'm Dan Bova. And from the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network, this is Dirty Money. Investigators have called it one of the biggest corruption cases ever. You're one of the greatest con men of all time. You're the daddy of them all. But what does it take to be a good con man? I'm not guilty. You're the one who's guilty. Hey, Dan, how you been? I'm good. I'm good and uh, arrest free. <laughs> oh, man. Goals. <laughs> Dan, I've got an important question for you this morning. Yeah. How much experience do you have with goat testicles? Hmm. I, I don't even know what that is exactly. You mean <laughs> like the animal goat or is that like a pill or something? No, I'm, and I'm not talking the greatest of all time. I'm talking about at the actual animal goat. Uh, I think I have zero experience, but you don't know what's in hot dogs, so who knows? <laughs> well, listen, it turns out that in the early 20th century, goat gland implants were like sort of a thing. Like it was a meme. If there were memes back in 1907, this would have <laughs> been a meme. And not only goat testicles, but all sorts of animal parts were being implanted into human beings to cure them of all sorts of random diseases, such as infertility and bad eyesight. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> this is like the island of Dr. Moreau and the X-Men. <laughs> this is real? Like people had goat testicles like put into their... <laughs> what? Uh, hmm. What does this have to do with dirty money, though? I, I need to ask, because uh, we do have a show that's about money, not not specifically about animal parts and yeah, specifically it's not dirty, dirty goat plans. No. So <laughs> obviously where there is medical quackery, there are going to be crooked doctors uh, that are ready to take advantage of it. And that is what we're going to be talking about today. There is a man by the name of Dr. John Romulus Brinkley. He was an American physician who became known as the goat gland doctor for a somewhat controversial medical practice of transplanting goat testicles into men to restore their virility. Uh, he was also a huge radio personality on par with like a Rush Limbaugh or a Dr. Drew because he was able to talk about sex in ways that were taboo at that time and people were fascinated by that. Wow. That's an interesting uh, paragraph you just said there, John. Uh, I'm not sure that I've ever heard about the uh, the goat gland doctor, but I'm going to guess if you've decided he should be the subject of one of our shows, things don't go well for this guy. Yeah, it's not a happy ending. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> a happy ending with with goat testicles. Yeah, sorry, wow. I, not a good phrasing. <laughs> but this story is actually fascinating because. A, I mean, come on, but also because it tells us just a lot about human nature and about sort of our willingness as people to believe in miracle cures, uh, even in the face of undeniable facts. So to help us tell this story, we're joined actually today by a very special guest named Pope Brock. Pope wrote a terrific story about Dr. Brinkley, which is called Charlatan, America's Most Dangerous Huckster, The Man Who Pursued Him. It's called America's Most Dangerous Huckster, the man who pursued him and the age of flim flam. I wonder what flim flam is. 
Pope joins us from Arlington, Massachusetts. He is a writer, he is a teacher, and he is a DJ. So here is our interview. Pope Brock, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Pope, we've been talking a lot about goat glands and testicles more than I ever have in my entire life. So (laughs) I'm very, very eager to hear this story. Yes. Pope, so we're going to talk today about John R. Brinkley. And I want to put this in a little bit of context. What was the world that John R. Brinkley sort of came up in in the early 20th century? Give us a little sense of like where medicine was, like what were how doctors were perceived, how, how they practiced. It was very different then than it is now. Am I, am I correct? The AMA had, um, had formed and it established itself, you know, like in the 19th century, but it still didn't really have any power. Right. The American Medical Association, that is, yeah. Yes, the American Medical Association. So they're sitting there in Chicago with all these you know, attitudes toward how medicine ought to be run. But in in practice, out in the States, it was very much still a kind of Wild West situation. And um, even within states, there, there wasn't a whole lot of regulation. So it was uh, a lot of things were up for grabs in terms of what you could do or not do. So, John Brinkley, can you tell us a little bit about his education as a doctor? Like, is this something that people just made up as they went along? Well, uh, in his case, for sure. <laughs> Some people <laughs> went to medical school yeah. and, um, you know, actually learned how to do what they were doing. But, you know, he started out in the, uh, uh, in the, in the hills of North Carolina with um, his father was a little traveling doctor there. So he followed him around. So he he saw country medicine you know, right down at the at the ground level. Um, after that, you know, once he got out, he he joined one of those um, quack standing on the back of a wagon kind of things, you know, where yeah. um, where he got some of his training there. It was totally valuable for whatever you know for what he did next. And then he got, where was it? Knoxville, Tennessee. I think he got into this. Uh, he, he first made contact with the, um, with the tired manhood situation. There was a whole clinic there devoted to that. So, you know, he worked his way up in the, uh, in, in Quackland, basically, and just took it a lot farther than anybody else had ever dreamed of doing. So quacks. Now, from your research and all that, do you think that any quack has ever, have they ever actually tried to help people? Or is it 100%, I know this doesn't work, and I'm just going to sell these people whatever thing I can stick in this bottle without caring what it does to anybody? Well, I, I think there are two definitions of quack, and I think you just said what they what they are. There's the conscious quack and the unconscious quack. I mean, there are people... Uh, throughout history who have been trying the, the most outrageous cures and methods and things like that. You look back and think, oh, my God, how could they possibly do that to people? But it was out of a sincere, you know, going all the way back to exercising demons. You know, they're really trying to get something done, even though you look back on it and say that, that was just nonsense. But wait, exercising demons is nonsense? 
Exorcizing. <laughs> what? Oh, yes? Yes. You had these I just paid a guy 10000 bucks for that. You, you feel better now after it? Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> Good. So, so, yeah. Anyway, so, yeah. So, then there are quacks who, who know exactly what they're doing and just trying to soak everybody for everything they can get. So, at this time, there were these things called, they were literally called eclectic medical schools. And John went to this, right? He went to something called the Eclectic Medical College of Kansas City. Like, what was that? Well, he went in quotes. Um, he wound up with uh, with a mail-order diploma for stuff that he didn't actually do. So his his actual medical training was um, was very thin. He left without actually graduating, as I remember, but mm-hmm. then the the, the um, diploma mill thing was rampant, and he took advantage of that. So it was a combination of some training and a lot of fake paper. Mm. And so with that, with that fake paper, he goes and he and he and he goes and he practices. Yeah, eventually. I mean, he didn't. There was uh, Greenville, South Carolina, first, mm-hmm. where he uh, he had a electric medicine practice with another guy. What was that? Uh, well, in which they injected water essentially into the butts of men in Greenville, South Carolina, as a rejuvenator, you know, for <laughs> just an outrageous amount of money. And then they said it came from Germany. So it, it had that European cachet. Mm. And so they laid waste the town and um, and then left, leaving 30 or 40 uh, merchant spills behind them. So, then, you know, this is all prelude to the uh, to the goat thing, which he began once he got to Milford. So, well, two things. One is, you know, it's easy, I guess, from our perspective to say, oh, my God, these people are paying money to get water injected into their butts. But... In the not too distant future, people were like paying to get cement uh, injected in their butts for these Brazilian butt lifts. So, uh, <laughs> oh, absolutely! I'm not yeah. saying people are, are are any dimmer or any sillier than uh, people running around today. It's just they just have different names on things. But uh, I mean, this is not. I'm not. Yeah, the procedures <laughs> change, but the people who are getting them don't. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and, and by calling it electric medicine, he was uh, Brinkley was playing into this fascination with the new thing, like right. electricity. You know, like you could put on electric slimming belts. You could put on, you know, electricity was the hot new medical treatment. So it was just uh, so that name was slapped on all kinds of things. Now. Is he getting rich at this point? Like, how, how's it going for him? Is he banking a lot of money here? Well, not in his mind. He was he was getting along. I mean, when you're charging, I think it was $25 a shot for these um, for these electric med- I You know, that's, I don't know what the equivalent was, but that is a hell of a lot of money. Yeah. Back to the 20s. Um, but... It was nothing compared to to the dreams of the future that he had. You mentioned the goat thing. I think we need to get to the goat thing. <laughs> we've, tell we've us buried about the lead. We buried thing. the goat. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so first of all, tell us what the procedure is, and then tell us how he even came up with this outrageous idea. Well, the procedure. Um, 
over the years, it would vary um, somewhat depending on how drunk he was when he performed it. Oh, my God. At, at best, it involved slitting open the scrotum and tossing in goat testicles along with you know, the other stuff that was already in there and then sewing them up. It was a real... <laughs> It was a real Bride of Frankenstein thing where they had the goat in the room and the, and the patient in the room, and they'd bring the goat in, they'd castrate the goat, and then they'd bring it across the room and put it in the guy. Mm. So oh, it was my. a classic procedure. John, we may have to put some kind of warning on the yeah. top of the show. If cause... there are kids listening. <laughs> oh, my God. Do you want me to say that in less graphic? No, no, okay. no, no. We no, love no. the graphic stuff. This is it's dirty money. We're not cleaning up anything here. So this so this but this type of procedure, you know, implanting animal parts into people, this was not was this uncommon at the time? Well, it wasn't common, but it had it had some cachet and this was part of how he was able to create his kind of Midwestern farm version of it because there were Europeans who were pursuing Monkey gland research, for example, this guy, uh, Serge Varanov, he's an example of a guy, you could call him a quack because he, what he was doing, putting monkey glands into people was, was, was worthless. But he sincerely believed what he was trying to, to, to do. Glands were, you know, in the air. Insulin had just been discovered in 1921. So there was a, a whole pancreatic gland thing going there. There was a lot of hope for what glands could do. So he said, well, what's the next frontier in glands? Well, it's rejuvenation um, uh, of all kinds. So all that was, was kind of out there. And then that's part of how Brinkley was able to legitimize what he was doing in a completely different way. So did it work? Are there half human, half goat children running around uh, the earth now? Well, this is the fabulous thing about dealing in impotence, because it is at least half in the mind. So if you think that it's going to work, it worked for a, a number of people, which is how he managed to keep it going. Wow. Amazing. Oh it actually worked. Well, it worked, but it, as I say, if you believe that it's going to work. Yeah, it's a placebo. You know, there's, we don't know about the placebo. Right, right. But there's a certain percentage of people then who will say, I'm satisfied, right? They are not the same people who got locked jaw from the uh, surgery or who died on the table. So there were uh, the outcomes were horrible in a number of cases, but he was able to get continue to get testimonials from a certain segment of people which helped uh, help keep it going over the years. And I believe this is in your book, but you, part of the reason people weren't calling for his head is that it was kind of embarrassing to have gone for this procedure, right? So if it didn't go correctly, they didn't want to tell people that, oh, I was at the, the goat ball clinic. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's right. So you've got the people who are satisfied and then the people who are very much not satisfied, but as you say, don't don't want to put up their hand and say so. So you put those two groups together and that's the majority of his patients. Tell us about how he even conceived of this idea because it just seems so out there. There was the European sort of sanctions of, uh, or hope uh, for it, uh, for gland research and gland 
uh, treatments in the air. He's out in Milford, basically with his head in his hands, thinking, how the hell am I going to make my uh, make my pile? And then this farmer named Bill Stitzworth came into his office one day and complained of not being able to get it up and said, what can you do for me? And Brinkley said, I can't do anything for you. I don't know how it works. Then there are two versions of what happens next. They're looking out the window and they see a goat. This is uh, rural Kansas. And Stitzworth says, uh, utters the immortal line, too bad I don't have billy goat nuts. Now, whether Brinkley at this point said, um, all right, uh, you have to pay me to do this or I'll pay you if we try it. Um, that was the aha moment. Okay. And so they started with Stitzworth and Stitzworth fatefully was one of the satisfied customers. He came back and said it works. And from that, then the whole thing just uh, snowballed. So to speak. Well, yeah, so to speak. (laughs) And um, (laughs) not, but it, there was also the advertising part and his advertising genius, if, uh, you know, whenever you want to get to that, because that had yeah. a lot to do. Well, that's kind of my next line of questioning is that he could have just been a kind of popular country doctor, you know, people in Kansas know about him. So there, how did he, how did he become a, a national, maybe even international sensation? Radio. Mm. Mm. In one word. And ladies and gentlemen, you're again listening to the voice of Dr. J.R. Brinkley of the Brinkley Hospitals. In Little Rock, Arkansas, and I trust that I may have your attention for the next few minutes regarding some matters of vital importance to you as a healthy man and healthy woman, or as a sick man and sick woman. Because I have some information that I want to give you free of charge. It's not going to cost you anything, but I can't give you this information until you tell me where you are. I must have your name and your address. And if you'll do that... Um. He he went out to California uh, early in the in the early twenties, nineteen twenty-two, maybe something like that. And he met um, uh, met the uh, editor of the Los Angeles. I think it was the Los Angeles Times. I don't know. It was so. Anyway, they had a radio station, and Brinkley took a look at it, and that's when he said. I can do that. So then he went back and he built a radio station right next to his clinic, you know, in the middle of, uh, in the middle of Kansas. There, this is 1923. The very first radio broadcast of anything was 1920. So it was, wow. you know, it was right at the very beginning of things. He got, he got one of the very first radio licenses ever issued. So he runs up this tower and he hops on the air and he starts pitching. So when we think of three million men and women that are sick all the time in the United States, we realize that something is wrong someplace. And I realized it many years ago. Because as I've told you in another broadcast, when I first began to talk over the radio and men and women uh, began coming to see Ms. Brinkley and me, why, of course, they told us that they'd been taking treatments at various places and had not gotten any better. So I realized at once that Dr. Brinkley must be a better diagnostician. Dr. Brinkley must give a better examination. Dr. Brinkley must provide a better treatment. If he was going to do anything for these sick men and women that was coming to him, 
who had been taking treatments other places and getting no better. That's what caused me to begin studying and examining and diagnosing and being careful. And that has contributed to my success and to the welfare of thousands of men and women who have heard my voice over the radio. And he could, and he could just sit at the mic yes. and maunder on for hours in this, uh, in, in this confidential way. This was another part of his genius, that he could, just, that he could, he could work the microphone, you know, like, like Bing Crosby later on. You know, it was just, he didn't do that stentorian thing. You know, he was just all, very, all very personal to you, the listener, there in your home. Um, he's in Kansas. He has the confidence, like a father, McLaughlin later, you know, uh, 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 he has a, a, a huge audience of people willing to listen to his, to his um, spiel. And it seems like everything is going to just go perfectly for him and he's going to make a fortune. He do, is making a fortune, but something, something happens. Tell us a little bit about when things start to turn a little bit south for him. Morris Fishbein edited the AMA journal, which at that point was uh, just, uh, it, it, had, it had a tiny circulation. It had no, he had no particular power, but he, like Brinkley, was determined to build this thing. He was, by instinct, a quackbuster extraordinaire. That's what he turned his whole career into, being this kind of avenging angel. And Brinkley really came on his radar when he, Brinkley, set up this thing in the late 20s called the medical question box, where he would sit on the, sit there in the air and, and dole out diagnoses over the air based on letters that people wrote in. And I believe when a man has his prostate bruised and rubbed by the doctor's finger, that he's taking chances on having a cancer form in that gland. I believe many men have come down and died from cancer of the prostate that would never have had a cancer of the prostate if they had not indulged in having their prostates rubbed and massaged and irritated in this way. On the other hand, leaving the infection in your prostate gland, that infection is certainly a source of irritation. It's not something to soothe your gland. My opinion is that these neglected infections in your prostate are productive of cancer. In the Country Club Hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas, prostates are cleared of infection, reduced in size, and their growth stopped without cutting the prostate, cutting, on, or cutting it out under mild, easy methods that come under a lifetime guaranteed plan of service and only require seven days of your time. And your friend, Dr. J.R. Brinkley, who has been engaged in this preventative work for almost 25 years, is inviting you to pay the Country Club Hospital Little Rock, Arkansas, a visit before it's everlastingly too late. He is, you know, he's practicing medicine off a piece of paper. And um, to supplement this whole thing or to, to make the whole it's all about money, right? So he he set he sets up this network of pharmacists with all of these bogus uh, ointments and salves and liquids and things. They all have numbers on them, you know, secret formula, this, that, and the other. And so then he'll get on the air, and every time he's diagnosing something, he says, "I've got a treatment for that too. It's number fifty. You go out to your farm and you know get this, that, and the other. I can't uh -huh. tell you what the ingredients are because that's a trade secret, but." Um, 
go get 50 and get some number six and uh, and take number 14 um, for the next, uh, at least the next two weeks. And, you know, call me in 10 years, you'll be fine. Right. Oh. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's just this monstrous empire he's got going, but it gives you the, uh, uh, the scope of his ambition. And a lot of uh, complicity <laughs> with uh, with these pharmacists. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Wow. It's, it's not like Brinkley was the only corrupt guy out there. He just had a bigger vision. Than, yeah. Than, but the people who didn't like it, the people who really hated it, were the real doctors. Right. Know? And and when they hear Brinkley diagnosing, uh, giving these kind of um, off the top of his head diagnoses and and pushing all of this, um, all these, um, uh, you know, bogus treatments. Um, they get up in arms about it because they're losing their practices. They look out in their waiting rooms. Nobody's there because they're, they're, they're working off the, off the mail, you know, with Brinkley. So they go to, to the AMA and say, you got to do something about this guy. And that's when Morris Fishbein kind of galvanizes around the whole thing. Says, okay, we, we really, we got to get after him. And um, then Fishbein makes it his business to try to put Brinkley out of business. So what's his, what's his first move? How, do, how does he go about that? And obviously we're talking about it. It sounds like he was successful. Uh, not right away. Um, he, uh, or, well, I guess it depends on your definition of success. He went at it, uh, in two, two ways. He wanted to take both licenses away from him, his radio license and his license to practice medicine. Those were the two things that kept him going. So it was not easy to do either one of these things because he didn't really have it, you know, enforcement power. But he he wound up getting this sort of grassroots campaign, assembling all these doctors, just beating the drum, beating the drum, so that he finally had hearings held. Fishbein finally got hearings held in uh, 1930, I think, in uh, Kansas. And people testified. Doctors testified. Patients testified. And um, the upshot of all of that was that Brinkley did lose his license to practice in Kansas. The most damaging uh, fact that came out was that uh, at least 42 people had died on the table. Wow. So. um, Wow. He's a monster. Well, yeah, you could say. Yeah. I mean, he had a a brilliant guy, a lot of ideas, had, had a big impact on popular culture. But yeah. Flip side, a monster, you bet. But despite all this, so he he can't practice in Kansas, but can he still practice even after that Kansas Medical Board hearings? Well, yeah, that's it, because uh, because what one state won't do, another state will do. So that so he scampered down to, to Texas. Texas took a, a broader view of things because, in part, because here comes this guy with all this money who's going to bring in patients with money, and this is going to be good for Texas. If, if there's a, an enduring principle of, of life through the ages, you know, it's that. Not only the money, but it's, it's the people willing, I feel like, willing to believe. It's really human nature. There's always going to be these people that are, that are, that are desperate that are going to believe anything. Oh, right? sure, sure. 
And when he lost his license in, in Kansas, um, before he, he went to Texas, I mean, right after he lost his license, a lot of people would slink away. He ran for governor. Wow. Just immediately. And he got the votes. He, he, he got the votes. And um, I'm reluctant to talk about stolen elections, but in his case, it, uh, it, it was stolen from him. It, really? Yeah. Because they, they saw that he was coming on strong as a write-in candidate. Because he, he he got in so late, but he you know the powers that be the legal establishment whatever saw that he uh, that he was a real threat so so they put out this rule like if you vote for Brinkley you've got to put and you're writing it in right because they had to write it in um, it has to be J period R period Brinkley spelled correctly right anything else uh-huh. will Doc Brinkley if you leave out the E in Brinkley the vote's out you know wow. So on that basis, you know, there were so there were all these votes for Doc Brinkley or the goat guy or, you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't, they didn't make it. It got tough. It's like the uh, the hanging Chad of, uh, you know, 1920. Exactly. Whatever. <laughs> wow. Crazy. Yeah. So he loses his governorship, still very popular, goes to Texas. What happens next? Well, he's lost two things. He's, he's lost his medical license, but he also has lost by now his radio license. Fishbein was successful there in Washington. Mm. So a lot of people in Brinkley's situation would be, you know, in uh, down and out. But he went down to Texas and then he went into Mexico. He stayed in, in, in Del Rio, Texas, where he based where he, he based himself, was just across the Rio Grande from Mexico. And uh, said, okay, if the uh, Federal Radio Commission is going to take away my radio license in the United States, I'm going to Mexico. So he gets a big satchel full of money and he trundles down to Mexico City and he talks to the president of Mexico. And next thing you know, he's got a radio license to build and broadcast in Mexico. And he sets up this new station on the edge of the Rio Grande, just outside of United States jurisdiction mm. wow. and, start, and starts blasting back across. Oh my God. This guy's unstoppable. <laughs> Absolutely unstoppable. And, and, and it was even better uh, for him because there were no, um, you know, there were, there were some regulations about how many Watts a station could could have in the United States. Uh, in Mexico, there were none. So he sets up this station, and first it's like about 200,000 watts, then it's 500,000, and eventually he's got a million watts going, which is just, there's no radio station on Earth that's doing anything like that. Wow. So he, he, he's heard everywhere. I mean, his voice is going all over the Western Hemisphere. So he's still practicing. He's broadcasting from Mexico. And is he still doing these procedures? Even during- No, he's, he's doing the procedures, but then he, he begins to kind of bank away from them. They're too labor intensive, you know, so he-, mm-hmm. he How's he making his money at this? Well, point? he's got, the, the goat gland thing is his signature procedure, but he turns into a one-stop shopping kind of clinic. You know, he's bringing people in. Yeah. You've got- Whatever it is, we can fix it. Often, often it was goat glass. 
because he, the more the time went on, the more he said, oh, it's not just for impotence, it's for everything. You know, it's the all purpose, you know, if you've got piles, if you've got dandruff, if you've got, if you're insane, you'll get fixed, you know. Anyway, he begins to move off of that and says, you know what, I, I don't have to do it, do the operation anymore because uh, I've perfected a new liquid that all you have to do is take it and um, it will supply all the benefits of the former surgery that I had to do. Can, can I fit in one thing about his, his, his genius for advertising? Because that's, yeah. that's one of the things that makes him uh, an important figure in the history of, um, you know, the cultural history of this country. He was the first guy to seize on the advertising power of radio. It was before that advertising was like, okay, we've got this chest of drawers. If you need a chest of drawers, here it is. He started doing the snake oil thing on the air in a way that nobody had ever thought of before. And that became a template for advertising generally, which is uh, you may not realize that you desperately needed this, but you do, you know, and, and getting people, awakening a desire for something that might not have crossed your mind before. I mean, that's, and, and, and so radio, other radio stations picked up that template, newspapers began to pick it up. It was a new way to advertise. So he was, a, he was sociopath or whatever, but he, he was an advertising genius and he brought that a lot of what made him so successful and uh, so popular huh so how does it end how does it end so how does it end for this guy well he's got his he's got the carter family singing on his radio station and um, all this stuff and everything looks like peaches and cream but then he all this time fishbein has just Fishbun's been running up and down on the border, basically going, what the Christ, how am I going to get this guy? Uh, and he's writing, writing screeds against him, but it, it all feels pretty impotent, so to speak. But then Brinkley makes the mistake of suing him for libel, suing Fishbein for libel, um, which uh, Brinkley by this time had become so full of himself that he really... He, he lost all sense of where reality lived. You know? yeah. And that by putting himself in a courtroom, he was putting himself in a place where he didn't need to go and that there was no upside to. Wow. You know, so there's a libel trial in Texas, in Del Rio, Texas. And Fishbein on one side of the aisle with his lawyers and Brinkley on one on the other with, with his lawyers. And again, the um, doctors get up and they start to talk about how ineffectual this stuff, what a weasel Brinkley really is. Brinkley thinks he's going to bring up all these satisfied customers again. And the judge says, you can't do that. They're not medical experts. I don't care if the Kansas hearing said it was okay. This is not a hearing. This is a, a libel trial, different rules. So Brinkley winds up having his defenses cut uh, almost completely out from under him. Mm. And he is relentlessly exposed. 
he makes the further mistake of getting on the stand once he realizes that he's not going to get the other support. And the uh, and Fishbein's attorney just picks him apart stitch by stitch about what he's actually been doing and what's actually in that formula 1020 that you're putting in people, uh-huh. you know, which turns out to be water with a little iodine in it, you know? Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, it's important to stay hydrated. So, I mean, it wasn't totally. Yeah. So, so he, he, <laughs> he, he lost. And once he lost, all kinds of people then reared up on their back legs and said, hey, he screwed me too. So, so then he's getting sued. I mean, dozens of lawsuits all at once. Um, and all of that brings him down. He's dead within two years after that. So the hubris ultimately undid him. Oh, yeah. Just fell from the top of the building straight down. So he had literal millions in that time, which is probably 10 times, if not more. This is the freaking depression. You know? Yeah. Regular doctors are making, you know, like 0.5% of that. But then when he got sued, all that stuff started to dissolve in, in, in you know, like snow in the hot sun. It was just, it just yeah. started to go. Uh, what a story. Yeah. Here's, a, uh, here's a dumb question. If I were to put up a sign that said, Hi, I'm Dan. I'm not a doctor, but I will implant a goat, goat testicles in you. Is that illegal as long as I'm not claiming to be Well, a gee, doctor? I'm not a doctor either. You'd probably have to call the AMA and ask them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would hope the regulations have gotten a lot better. Do, do you think as a result of this case, regulations got better? I mean, is this, what did it inspire some reforms in the medical industry? Absolutely. He, he became uh, a kind of, he became a watershed case in terms of the need for national uh, standards for doctors. And uh, the AMA was transformed by Brinkley, by Brinkley's hubris and uh, all of his quackery and whatnot it, he he was the the uh, fulcrum that enabled the ama to gain power a lot of power all of a sudden which um, they have never relinquished mm. for better and worse for better and worse because it's there's been some worse yeah you know? there have been some issues so he's getting he's getting sued like crazy and does he does he fight? What what ends up happening after he starts getting sued? Well, he's he's getting sued from all sides, and his health breaks down. He he's suddenly, uh, I I don't remember the reason for it, but he he uh, he had his leg amputated in 1941 or two, hmm. uh, not too long after the not not too long after the libel trial, which was in 1939. And um, he was dead within a year after that. So it was a combination of getting his brain sued out and um, and his health, his own health collapsing. He was in his 40s. Another reason he was a, a big force and worth remembering is his influence on country music. Hmm. Uh, really? Yeah, because he... It was all marketing for him. He wasn't any kind of big country music fan. It was all marketing. He realized that as enthralling as he was, he was not going to be able to keep people on 
on the air just by talking to them. He would have to have entertainment. So he started bringing acts on and uh, country music acts on. And, and because his, his radio station was so powerful, country music blasted out across the United States and beyond for the first time. He was the guy. He was the guy who was responsible for taking it out of that regional nest and uh, waking up the whole country to it. So, um, so that's a that's a His huge legacy. Is wow, complicated. <laughs> yes. So, so that, that's that's a huge thing. You know, it's a huge thing. Wow. Without him, we wouldn't have the achy breaky heart. By the way, Dan, without him, we wouldn't have. We wouldn't have had uh, achy, breaky balls either. But anyway, I just had to say that. Well, something like that. But, you know, he, goes, he, he, he put that radio station up in Mexico. All these, so other people got the same idea. They went down. Suddenly there are border blasters, you know, that, that's where they all come from. But he inspired them, you know. So there they got this whole line of people um, broadcasting all kinds of wild stuff that, uh, that United States stations wouldn't... Uh, play and when and ultimately wolfman jack winds up in the seat that brinkley uh had wolfman jack. <laughs> yep. same radio station wow same, same chair from goats to wolves like what what is going the animal kingdom is very uh much part of this man's story pope this is such a great story the book is called charlatan america's most dangerous huckster the the man who pursued him and the age of flimflam. It's a great read. Thanks again for doing this, and uh, what a great, what a great episode. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this is awesome. Dirty Money is a production of Entrepreneur Media. It is produced and hosted by Dan Bova and John Small. Editing by John Small. Theme music by Rich Bova. Hey, if you like the show, please give us a rating and a review. It will help us spread the word. We'll see you next time for some more white-collar crime. <laughs>